Blog Talk Radio. Today on Backroom Politics, crisis in Gaza as continued Israeli offensive into Gaza City and the surrounding areas escalate into more casualties, more violence. Secretary of State Kerry decides to make a drastic policy change. Did he even talk to POTUS about this one? We're going to be talking to Marie Cernan from the Israel Project. Also, midterm elections. We're going to be talking Senate side this time with our good friend and special guest, John Freshman. This and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday. That means it's time for the best political radio show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing the 2nd Congressional District of Washington State. He is the Honorable Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman Yo. Al. And to my 11 o'clock, he is the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation and former Floor Chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hello, Justin. And to my 12 o'clock, directly across the table, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count under four presidents. He is a longtime Senate insider, longtime Senate staffer, and a very distinguished, handsome, and factual fellow. From the Stimson Center, he is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my one o'clock, she is the former House Counsel for the Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson, former Obama appointee as General Counsel to the Maritime Administration. She's the Honorable Denise Krep. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my two o'clock, he is the former lobbyist for 20th Century Fox, former Executive Director of the Democratic Party of the Great State of Maryland. He is. Washington insider Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And to my right, ironically, he is longtime Democratic political operative and just general all-around attorney. Good guy. He is Dan Lipner, Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hey, Justin. Glad to be here. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about. Big show. Joining us today is our special guest and our good friend, long-lost friend, John Freshman. We're going to be talking midterm elections with John here in a second. But first, we want to get to uh, breaking news coming out of the Middle East. Uh, if, for those who have not heard, there is a con- the continued offensive uh, between the Israeli Defense Forces and uh, the Hamas rebellion inside the uh, Gaza Strip. It has continued to become a war of words. It is a war of wills. However, it has gotten escalated because of Secretary Kerry's call today 
to all of a sudden say that the Americans should help a unilateral agreement with Hamas, basically saying we should negotiate with Hamas, which last time I checked was a terrorist organization. Joining us right now from the Israel Project is Omri Cernan, who is uh, joining us right now on the phone. Omri, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. Hey, Omri, real quickly, first, tell us a little bit about the Israel Project and exactly what you guys are doing and how you guys are promoting the interests of not only Israel and the Jewish state, but Israelis globally. So we actually don't we, – we're a uh, pub, recognizable in D.C., a public affairs firm, basically. You know, there are lobbies that work on the Hill. We're not that. There are think tanks that produce papers. We're not that. And then there are folks who work with journalists on issues that are uh, of concern to them. Uh, we work not so much on behalf of the Israelis. We're a D.C.-based organization. We work on behalf of uh, – we're a recognizable kind of pro-American exceptionalism type firm that believes that the U.S.-Israel relationship is integral to promoting American interests, things like power projection in the Eastern Mediterranean, let alone, you know, the softer kind of things like economic integration, global integration, innovation, technology, and so on. So really, I think probably the best way to understand what we do is we help explain what's going on in the Middle East to journalists with an eye towards uh, strengthening the U.S.-Israel relationship. Well, perfect. Great opportunity to have you on the air with us. Uh, the, the big question today, obviously, Omri, is the latest statements coming out of Secretary Kerry. Uh, when, when Secretary Kerry makes the announcement that he believes that the Israelis and thus also the American government should be talking to Hamas about possible ceasefire solutions, how, how difficult is it for not only Americans who always believe that we have a special relationship with Israel, but for the global community as a whole to have the Americans say, we want to negotiate to an organization that was longly thought to be a terrorist organization. So this actually gets pretty deep in the weeds. You know, the State Department's uh, stance on this is, and this is explicit, right? I'm quoting from this afternoon's press conference between State Department spokeswoman Jen Paskey, and she was in an exchange at the time with the Associated Press's veteran diplomatic correspondent, Matt Lee. Uh, you know, they always say, and now I'm quoting from memory, but more or less quoting, we don't negotiate with Hamas. In fact, you know, one of the big sources of tension right now uh, it, that's emerged between our Israeli and our Arab allies on one side and the State Department and the Obama administration on the other side has been this idea that Kerry, some have said recklessly, most many have said needlessly, brought the Qataris and the Turks in. So the way to think about the Middle East these days is we're really talking about three different factions. And across the region. We're talking about Iran and their Shia proxies, so that's Syria, that's Hezbollah. Uh, we're talking about the radical kind of extremist Sunni groups, and that's usually taken to be the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas, which is a Muslim Brotherhood offshoot, Turkey and Qatar. And then America's traditional Arab and Israeli allies, which find themselves in kind of this third block. And what's really uh, become a source of consternation for the Arabs and for the Israelis over the last couple of days is that for many, many, many weeks, the Egyptian proposal was the ceasefire proposal that was on the table. So the Egyptians, the Saudis, and the Israelis tend to find themselves on the same page in the region these days. And that's traditionally how it's been. If you want to deal with the Palestinians in Gaza, you go through Egypt. And then it appeared to many, many, many people 
that in a last-minute move on Friday, the Secretary of State brought in the Qataris and the Turks and kind of took their proposal, which obviously is much more pro-Hamas. They're aligned with Hamas. They're Hamas's biggest backers, and tried to present that to the Israelis. And that's really where the tension has emerged. Now, there are debates about whether or not that was actually what happened. So the State Department has said... Secretary Kerry didn't actually offer a proposal, and the proposal that he offered was the Egyptian proposal and so on. And that is uh, a he said, she said in the region, and it's a diplomatic he said, she said. But we do know that both the Israelis and the Palestinian Authority have expressed anger specifically about Kerry uh, becoming very, very close very, very quickly with the Qataris and the Turks, who again are Hamas's main backers. But uh, obviously the latest comments from Secretary Kerry have put a dent in what is already a hugely dented relationship between Tel Aviv and the White House. Prime Minister Netanyahu came out and pretty much scathed the American government and Secretary Kerry for any thought about direct talks with Hamas. Is it just a matter of us getting into the weeds and understanding the facts? Is this a press war that we're now dealing with between Washington and possibly Tel Aviv? Or is the media blowing this out of proportion? No, there's there's genuine anger on both sides. There's undeniably genuine anger on both sides. Now, the important thing to emphasize at the beginning of all of these conversations is the U.S.-Israel relationship is so deep and on so many levels that these kinds of day-to-day dramas don't really impact it even in the medium term. But if you're asking about the last 48 hours, there's undeniably anger on both sides, and you heard this from American officials as well, that they think the Israelis are overreacting, and the Israelis think they got betrayed. And frankly, if you watch the State State Department press conference just today, it wrapped up about an hour and a half ago, there was a moment where, the beginning in fact, where Spokeswoman Paskey was pushed on something that Secretary of State Kerry said. So Secretary of State Kerry said a couple, just in the last few hours, he said, uh, I... I'm paraphrasing, but he said, I don't know what all the fuss is about. Prime Minister Netanyahu asked me to come to the region and mediate and propose a ceasefire. And the Israelis and most journalists thought that that was kind of surreal because, as somebody put it at yesterday's press conference, you know, the Israelis had been asking for breathing room to do it and fought tooth and nail against that kind of mediation effort. So after that happened, Kerry goes and he says, uh, I don't know, understand what's going on. I was asked by Netanyahu to mediate. And so this morning, this, this afternoon, there is an exchange where the State Department spokeswoman is asked, uh, hey, just out of curiosity, what day did Netanyahu ask Kerry to mediate and to propose a ceasefire? And, and spokeswoman Paskey would not answer the question. So she got asked again. No, 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 no. And her answer was, well, you know, they were always talking about a ceasefire. And the reporter who was quizzing her said no. What day did Prime Minister Netanyahu ask for uh, Secretary of State Kerry to mediate because the Secretary said, quote, unquote, Prime Minister, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu asked me to mediate. And this went on for five minutes with just an absolute refusal to answer. And a lot of people left that room thinking that, uh, you know, Secretary Kerry hadn't so much made things up, but maybe had heard something that wasn't there. A lot of people are speculating that. Let's talk about Prime Minister Netanyahu for a second. When we talk about Bibi Netanyahu, we obviously are talking about somebody who has a very strong will, who is obviously going to defend Israel's right to exist. 
Uh, he's come out and said, look, as long as there are rockets, and I'm paraphrasing, as long as rockets continue to enter Israel, we're going to do whatever it takes to defend ourselves. Uh, it, it, it seems to us that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is in this for the long haul. Is, is the global thinking in Israel that this is going to be a long, drawn-out war, or is this something that many is, Israelis are looking to have a quick resolution to that we can get back to normal? It's an excellent question, and many uh, when we get past the diplomatic uh, kind of dimensions, it's the question: Where are the? What are these Israelis doing? What are they thinking? And of course, the other one is: What is Hamas doing? What is it thinking? But to begin with the Israeli side, we actually have polling data on this. Uh, not we, but it's out there, and overwhelming majorities of Israelis. I saw a number as high as 86 percent want the operation to continue until Hamas is Hamas's arsenal is severely degraded. Remember, there's a lot of confusion about how this war started. Israel actually has two operations going on right now, one in the West Bank and one in the Gaza Strip. So one to its east and one to its south. The West Bank operation is about the kidnapping and murder of the three Israeli boys, and it targets Hamas's West Bank infrastructure. So there are Hamas operatives, Hamas fighters, and Hamas leaders in the West Bank, and they're being targeted because of their role in the kidnapping and murder of the three Israeli teenagers. There is an entirely separate, unrelated operation going on in the Gaza Strip, and that's what people see on their TVs, and that has to do with Hamas's rockets and Hamas's uh, underground attack tunnels. So in the West Bank, you had a situation where the West Bank Hamas guys decided to escalate and do the kidnapping, and that happened, and the Israelis are responding, and that's called Operation Brothers Keeper. What people see on their TV is Operation Protective Edge, which is a second operation, which, was, which really has its seeds in Hamas rocket launches that began at the beginning of the year. You know, even before the kidnapping, there had been something, even before the ground invasion, there had been something like 450 rockets fired at Israel without anything really going on. They're just a planned escalation, and that's what brought the Israelis to the Gaza border. And then when they got there, Hamas attempted to do these raids on small Israeli communities, 150 people, 300 people, where they would spill, really like something out of a movie. They would spill out of tunnels in the dead of night, 13 of them, 20 of them, and attempt to infiltrate a small Israeli community. These are commandos. So one of the ones, the first one that was eliminated uh, was 13 guys who spilled out about 250 yards from a small, barely protected Israeli community of 150 people. They were carrying RPGs. They were carrying uh, high-capacity Kalashnikovs. They were carrying grenades. And when that happened, the Israelis said, whoa, we have a strategic threat on our hands. We have dozens of tunnels that empty out within five-minute jogs of Israeli border communities. That, has to be, that infrastructure has to be destroyed. And as they went in and they discovered more and more of these tunnels, what they discovered was actually kind of like Bond-esque villain level, or if you want, something out of Vietnam. So there are three sets of tunnels. There's the smuggling tunnels that go between Gaza and Egypt, the attack tunnels that go between Gaza and Israel, and then in between, kind of linking them, is this underground city of hundreds of tunnels that Hamas uses for command and control, to direct their troops, to store their weapons. 
And so it was discovered that Hamas has been spending billions, millions and millions and millions of dollars and thousands and thousands and thousands of tons of concrete to build themselves this infrastructure, which has as its goal storing weapons to fire at Israeli civilians, the rockets, and attack tunnels that are used to attack Israeli civilians. And those are the things that the Israelis are after, and they will not leave the Gaza Strip until they've eliminated at least the tunnels because those po- – I mean, that is a, that's a catastrophe waiting to happen. It's having commandos on the edge of – the equivalent for us would be on the edge of a Midwestern mall perennially threatening to invade and shoot everybody up and having the capability to do it. How long um, will it take to destroy the tunnels? The, the estimates are a couple of days to a week. Uh, Omri, we, we've also heard through several sources, including CNN, that these tunnels were largely built and are largely powered by Israeli-generated power, and the concrete was Israeli concrete subsidized by the Israeli government for the building of schools, the building of community centers, and they've taken that concrete. Is there any accuracy to those reports, including that one from Wolf Blitzer and CNN? That is 100% true. Uh, some of it was subsidized, much of it was overseas concrete, but what the Israelis did is, under enormous international pressure, including from Washington, D.C., but also from the United Nations and from non-governmental organizations, under enormous pressure, they let up on their bans on, so, uh, on, the, on the import restrictions they had on concrete. The Israelis said, Hamas is using the concrete to bolster its terror infrastructure. We know, for instance, they said at the time, they're building, under, they're building bunkers under hospitals. We don't want to give it to them. And the response they got back, and again, this came from the European Union, from Washington, D.C., from the, Interna- from the United Nations, from international human rights organizations, was that can't be true. There's no concrete in Gaza. Look, there's a severe shortage. You need to let more in. So the Israelis proceeded to continue letting more in. Now, who paid for the concrete? Sometimes it was international organizations. Sometimes it was humanitarian organizations. But the critical thing is Israel made the conscious decision for humanitarian reasons to let in the concrete. And then, as you say, it was diverted to uh, using the tunnels. And it's not a small amount of concrete. You know, there are infographics floating around out there that shows they could have built hundreds of clinics. They could have built uh, schools. They could have built uh, um, parks for the kids. But they used it to build attack on tunnels so that they could try to uh, kill Israeli civilians. Omri, we're, uh, we're monitoring CNN right now, and there's breaking news coming out of Gaza right now. CNN is reporting that they are finding F-16 fighters uh, flying over Gaza in what looks like to be either close ground coverage or a new air offensive. It, it, it seems to me that with all the pictures and now with the escalation of air coverage over Gaza, with all the pictures coming out of Gaza City and the surrounding areas, we're seeing children, we're seeing women either injured or, at worst-case scenario, killed. But it seems that Tel Aviv has got itself in a catch-22 situation, the right to defend itself and the protection of Iron Dome. But as long as they keep firing rockets into Israel, there's going to be consequences for that. Is this, is this a situation right now where Israel is getting hyper-targeted, or is this offensive going to unfortunately have casualties of war as a result of trying to defend their sovereignty? I mean, there will be casualties. It's interesting that you began with uh, 
the idea that what the pictures that we're seeing, because, you know, we know for a fact we know, uh, and I'll get to why in a second, but for a fact we know that Hamas bans photographers in Gaza from taking pictures of dead fighters. So when you say we're seeing pictures of kids and women, unfortunately, you're absolutely right. That is what's broadcast. But that's because Hamas won't let anything out. And how do we know that? Because we know that journalists are being intimidated to the point where just in the last few hours, Hamas is monitoring all of the Twitter feeds of people in, of journalists in the Gaza Strip. And somebody posted a tweet that said uh, Hamas is, you know, firing near a hospital. And Hamas thugs showed up and made them delete the tweet. And as uh, somebody quipped, you know, early, uh, after that incident, you know, the smart reporters never delete their tweets because they're smart enough to know that they're not supposed to put that stuff in the, up in the first place, lest Hamas come after them. And so the first thing to say is you're absolutely right. Those are the pictures you're seeing. It is very, very bad for the Israelis that uh, those are out there. They, it creates a negative and false impression of what's going on. But nonetheless, it's what you're seeing. And it goes beyond journalistic intimidation. In fact, the, in the very, very early days of Operation Protective Edge, Hamas's interior ministry posted a video to YouTube instructing Gaza residents on, and this makes perfect sense to a D.C. audience, it was a messaging guide and a talking points guide. So it, this is a video published by Hamas that literally said, hey, civilians, when journalists talk to you, remember to always begin your sentences with, in light of the Israeli Zionist aggression, dot, 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 always mention women and children casualties. So they're media training and they're intimidating journalists to ensure that the, what you said exactly, the pictures that people see are pictures of women and children. That said, the Israelis appear to have made a decision that they can no longer permit international double standards, international naivete, international manipulation to endanger their people. And, you know, they, it, it, it's a balance. The Israelis keep embracing these humanitarian ceasefires under pressure, and Hamas keeps using them to consolidate their troops, to recover, to regain the tempo, and to kill Israeli soldiers. Israel has lost soldiers because it stood down during ceasefires that Hamas used in order to plant operatives and fighters and militants and terrorists and whatever you want to call them inside of tunnels and send them at Israeli troops where they popped out and started machine gunning people. So I think the Israelis are really – I think there's, Israelis are getting to a point where they have to say, listen, uh, or they believe they have to say, listen – uh, we just can't deal with this naivete anymore. It's getting our people killed. And the thing they're pointing to, to bring this around, the thing they're pointing to is the entire fiasco with the tunnels where the international community said to the Israelis, your concerns are overblown, your concerns are overblown, your concerns are overblown, send in more concrete, you have to take risks for peace, you have to take humanitarian risks. And the result is that over 50 Israelis have been killed either directly in attacks facilitated by the tunnels or trying to wipe out the tunnels. Omri, uh, we, we've noticed that as late as today, Israel has said, quote-unquote, the ball is in Hamas's court. But it seems to me that a logical solution to this might include the head of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas. But yet Abbas seems to have been almost neutralized in all this. Does Abbas look at this as, you know, somehow the authority is going to have to, if they can, flex their muscle and say, look, we've got to put an end to the violence. Let us deal with this. We'll take Hamas's concerns into the room. But as the Palestinian Authority, we're going to be the ones that 
Tel Aviv will negotiate with? I, I mean that that analysis is the is the analysis that I think most of the professional diplomats are making. You know, one of the re, why, one of the reasons why the Palestinian Authority and its president Mahmoud Abbas lashed out at pre, at Secretary of State Kerry for that entire incident we talked about at the top of the hour, the uh, idea of bringing in the Qataris and the Turks and Hamas, is he said, listen, I mean, like it or not, if I'm weak or not, the PLO is the internationally recognized uh, organization that is, inter- that is authorized to speak on behalf of the Palestinian people. This is kind of an old phrase, a post-World War II phrase, when we had sub-state groups and there was an organization picked that people could talk to on their behalf to, or negotiate with on their behalf. So he said the PLO for decades has been internationally recognized as the address for when you want to deal with the Palestinians, and the Palestinian Authority nominally has control over the Gaza Strip. What are you doing? Uh, so first, in answer to, your, to the second half of your question, yes, a thousand percent, there is that sentiment and there is uh, that frustration on the side of the Palestinians. Now, whether it's diplomatically possible is a different question, and it's a very tangled question, and there's a reason for that that's relatively straightforward. Imagine, yes, it w- everyone's ideal, everyone's ideal is a Palestinian state that lives at peace with Israel, the Palestinian state would be in the Gaza Strip and in parts of the West Bank, and they and it would accept peace with Israel. That's everyone's ideal. But the Gaza Strip is currently ruled by Hamas and by a population that may reject Hamas now, but within memory elected Hamas. So you would have to do something to insert Abbas to the Gaza Strip to help him seize power. Now that can happen one of two ways. Either it can happen by Israel militarily dismantling Hamas, in which case it would, be very, it would be awkward for Abbas to come in there because it would look like he was doing it on the Israelis' behalf. Or Hamas voluntarily hands over the reins to Abbas, but then he would be treaty-obligated to dismantle Hamas's illegal rockets. Remember, the treaties with Israel don't permit the Palestinians to keep these long-range rockets or these, sh- even, or these destructive Qassams in the Gaza Strip. So Abbas would be expected to demilitarize those rockets. But the problem is you've got a population that's really, really proud of the rockets because it's the only way that they have access to killing Israelis. Congressman Al Swift, you have a question for Omri Cernan from the Israel Project. Yes, we've been uh, discussing this matter for several weeks now, of course, because it's been going on for several weeks. Uh, actually, it's been going on for years. It's been going on for thousands of years, as a matter of fact. And it doesn't seem to get better. I've just been listening very carefully to your remarks uh, here on the program. And it, it, if word hopeless doesn't describe the situation, I can't imagine what does. I just am wondering whether there is any way, given the needs of Israel and the attitudes of, uh, and needs, in some cases, of uh, their uh, foes, uh, that anything is ever going to be done at all. And it puts the United States and Europe and the United Nations and what have you kind of in a position of keeping the lid on without ever being able to turn the fire off under the pot. Uh, What? What, what reaction do you have I mean, to that? 
Yeah, that is that is the fear, and that's increasingly the consensus, and nobody's really sure what to do about it. In the in the you know most basic sense, what do you do if you've got a population of just let's limit it limited to the Gaza Strip? You got a population of 1.5 million people, of which huge swaths are willing to make incredible sacrifices in pursuit of the destruction of Israel. What do you do? Uh, now, it was thought decades ago. Well, you give them some economic, you give them economic growth, you give them a political horizon, and then you raise a couple of generations where what you're teaching the kids. We now live in peace with our neighbors. There was a war. The war ended. Everybody went back to their corners, and now these are our neighbors. And then you slowly create economic integration, political ties, cultural exchanges, and so on. The problem was those decades. You mean this? No, the theory. Me? It's a theory, Al. It's a theory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the problem is, instead, the Palestinians used those decades to, incu- to basically raise generations of children who hated the Israelis. And here we are. Uh, Dan Lipner, question for Omri Cernan. Yeah, Omri, uh, I'm just kind of curious. We don't get a lot of coverage as far as, uh, obviously, the, the crisis in Gaza is what's going on. But the West Bank... And what is Abbas's relationship with Netanyahu? Is it, I mean, Netanyahu's known to be rather abrasive to several Western leaders, but what is their relationship like? I mean, they don't like each other. They definitely don't like each other. They are currently united. They're currently united on the level of interest in degrading Hamas in battling something that doesn't get nearly the attention it should, which is Iranian interference, not just in the West Bank, but also in Jordan, Iranian efforts to just destabilize moderate Arab entities. But they certainly don't like each other. I think they probably understand each other better than other leaders may understand Netanyahu, just because it's the same neighborhood and so on. But they're also men who pursue the in, pursue interests and... Abbas, for better or worse, Abbas believes it's his, in his interest to diverge with the Israelis, but he's not in that sense a fanatic. He's just somebody that refuses to come to terms with our Israeli allies. Omri, uh, last question here in this segment. When, when we look at a possible solution, does the end solution, does the end game, in your opinion, look like Abbas... Netanyahu with some interaction between the Egyptians and the Qataris and the Turks? Is, is, is the ideal situation a real possibility? The ideal situation is Hamas agrees to meet its international obligations to disarm. They're not going to do that voluntarily. It's their reason for existing. It's, the, it's, how, they, it's how they maintain control. Uh, the next version is something like Hamas has hit so hard that they don't try this again for a decade, and you get some combination of Palestinian authority monitoring, and you get a blockade, and you get some easing from the Egyptians and so on, and maybe people stumble along for the next decade, like has mostly happened in Israel's north. You know, the Israel's, Israelis face the same situation in the north, where Hezbollah has massive tunnels that go into Israel in preparation for an invasion, but there haven't been rocket attacks, more, or at least not the consistent, there have been rocket attacks, but not the consistent shelling that comes out of Hamas, and that's the result of Israel's 2006 war with Hezbollah. 
So there's a range all the way from what would be diplomatically ideal to what is militarily possible. But one of the X factors, and I'll leave your listeners with this idea, one of the real X factors is that this war, that, is that Hamas's goals for this war have actually very little to do with Israel. And it's not me saying that. It's everybody from the American Task Force for Palestine that says that to Arab Affairs journalists and so on. Their real demand is they want the Egyptians to open up the crossing between the Gaza Strip and Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. Egypt won't do it as long as Hamas is in charge because the Egyptians are afraid that Hamas, the jihadists, will, as they used to under Morsi, under the former Muslim Brotherhood uh, President uh, Morsi in Egypt, will use the opening to move jihadist personnel and materials back and forth. And so when we evaluate the end games, we have to remember that it's not just the Israelis or even the Palestinian Authority that has to be involved, but you have to get Egyptian buy-in. And the Egyptians and the Saudis, along with the Israelis and the Jordanians, are aligned against, regionally aligned against, old-school alliances aligned against the Qataris, the Turks, and Hamas, which is why this is this, which is why on a diplomatic level there have been so many complications. Very good, very good. Omri Cernan from the Israel Project. Thank you very much for joining us today on Backroom Politics. Thank you for having me. When we come back, we're going to be talking midterm elections. John Freshman joins us for a discussion on can the Republicans take it back or. Is this really a bastion of Democratic stronghold? Stay with us. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Everybody knows Shelley's Backroom for its corporate events, its happy hours, its famous campfire wings and spurred cigars and drinks. But what you didn't know is that Shelley's is open during the weekend, too. In fact, Shelley's Back Room on the weekends even has a non-smoking section. You can bring your family, your kids, enjoy the same campfire wings and same glorious food that you enjoy during the week, but without the famous Shelley's cigar environment. Also during the weekend, it's football season. That means a lot of the regulars come down and enjoy their drinks and their favorite cigars, all while watching their favorite local teams, whether it's the Ravens, the Redskins, on several HD screens throughout the place. So remember, Shelly's Back Room, it's not just for happy hours anymore. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., official sponsor of Backroom Politics. on the elevation on the shelf they misbehaving saving my love for you and you especially you yeah i know for certain the one i love i'm through with flirting it's you that i'm thinking of and misbehaving saving all my love for you Behaving, saving my love for you, for 
I'm talking about. And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining us again is our good friend and longtime Washington operative, John Freshman, here to talk with us about the midterm elections coming up here in November and the Senate and the interesting races coming out here in the Senate. John, thanks for joining us again, as always. We love having you. Great to be back. Hey, John, uh, the, the Senate, everybody's got their eyes on the Senate right now as far as can the Republicans retake the Senate as a whole and create a Republican bastion in Congress, leaving President Obama with a Republican Congress that he's got to deal with, hopefully lifting some of the logjam. In, in, in talking with you and with Alan Moore, is this a pipe dream by the GOP, or is there some reality to this? It's not a pipe dream at all. There's a lot of reality to this, and we'll go through some of the reasons why. Well, let, let, let's talk about this. Alan Moore, you know, when we, when we talk about the, the, the possible Republican taking of, of the Senate again, uh, there, there's about 10 key races right now that we're looking at uh, that could possibly give the Republicans the advantage. What are the reasons why this is not a pipe dream that the GOP sees this as a very staunch reality? Well, it's all in the details. You start, you got 10, as you say, 10 races. Don't go through them. Yep. say there's six. Some people say there's eight that are in play. There's usually something in play that isn't appear to be in play because we're still many months out. A lot of things can happen. But when you look at some of the things we can be very confident of, um, in terms of uh, seats switching from Democrat to Republican, some open seats in particular, I'm thinking about at least three that are almost certain to become Republican. Um, you've got a 55-45 Democrat majority now. Uh, just take three seats that are going to be open that seems virtually certain to go to the Republicans. Then you've got 52-48. Then you've got a, a, you know these eight, uh, eight to ten that are that are in play, if you will, and there's all sorts of different ways that you can see the Republicans squeaking out some kind of a majority. I do think that no matter what happens, and we can get to this at the end, we will have a very narrow majority by one party or the other, and we will still have very big challenges in getting stuff. John, John Freshman. Narrow majorities are not always a blessing. You can ask Tom Daschle, who's no longer a senator, what it's like to preside over a Senate that's 51-49 when you're from a conservative state and you have to make sure that your colleagues from New York and California are taken care of. The same thing is going to happen, and we'll talk about who it is uh, to whoever the Republican leaderships are. 51-49, which is probably as much as you can see happening, is at best a mixed blessing. Well, let's, but, but having, go ahead. having said that, I believe, and we'll talk at the end, that there is a 50-50 chance that we're going to see a Republican Senate. We may see a Republican Senate uh, without an incumbent majority leader because he may not be among the people that comes back. That's one of the interesting things that we're going to talk well, about as we go through. Let, let's look at the interesting races right now. Starting from the bottom, why don't we, why don't we look at the number 10, working our way up to the most fascinating race. What's number 10 on your list right now? Well, I don't really have it in terms of fa- I'm fascinating, but we can figure out how to do that. But <laughs> uh, There's not really a lot of fascinating characters out there, but... 
I would say that um, we never thought that uh, Iowa would be in play as much as it is. I would say that Iowa is likely Republican right now. The Democratic congressman was in, a, in what has been a, in the last decade a strong uh, a state is not, is not doing that well. So, but let me, uh, can I go backwards for just yes, a second, absolutely. please? And then come back to where no, you No, no, absolutely, absolutely, great. absolutely. One thing you got to remember when you have a 55-45 Senate is that it really should be 51-49 already because the Republicans should have won Nevada and Delaware four years ago, except for some bad candidates. And they should have won Indiana and Missouri two years ago, except for some heroic blunders down the stretch by the Republican uh, People. So now we have Joe Donnelly and Kate McCaskill and Harry Reid and Coons in the Senate. But it really, if, if, if those had been mediocre races by the Republican candidates, you would already be at 50-48. The other thing is that these things come in waves. There was a huge Democratic class in 1958 that was overwhelmed by a huge Republican class in 1960. There was a big Republican class in 1980, 92. You know, we have cycles here. And so what you're seeing is a lot of Democrats running in states that Obama lost. And they're famous names. And, you know, we've got a prior, we've got a Begich, we got a none. we got three uh, offspring of, of previous senators, a trend that we're seeing more and more. So that's fascinating right there, I think. Um, well, well you, you brought up Iowa. Let's, let's look at Iowa. Uh, Iowa, according to many sources, is considered a toss-up state. You've got a, uh, an incumbent that's retiring, uh, and you've got a, a strong Republican uh, push in Iowa to, to get that seat into the red, but you've also got a Democratic Party that's not necessarily lying down. How do you, how do you look at this, John? And anything that happens in Iowa, of course, has implications for 2016, just right. because it's Iowa. I think that that's a genuine toss-up. Iowa's a genuine toss-up. Michigan's a genuine toss-up. Um, Arkansas, I think, is a toss-up, and we'll talk more about that. Um, those states, you just wouldn't expect to be that close. I think New Hampshire's going to be a toss-up. I think it's amazing that, that, that where you have a... Uh, speaking of famous names, you also have one of the two Udalls, one safe in New Mexico, one is pretty well threatened by a charismatic congressman named Cory Gardner in Colorado. You have three really good congressmen. Uh, Tom Cotton in Arkansas is running uh, a very strong race against Mark Pryor. He's not making any of the classic mistakes. Mark Pryor is the son of a senator. He's doing better than you would have thought. He's in the high 40s. Uh, you got a guy named Cassidy, a congressman in Louisiana, who's challenging another famous name, Mary Landrieu, son of a mayor, daughter of a mayor, brother of a mayor also, sister right. of a mayor, sister, also, mayor. sister right. and daughter. Um, and yet these, and then you have Begich in, in Alaska, that's murky because we don't know who's going to win the Republican primary and we don't know whether or not there's going to be an independent challenge. So maybe in some ways Alaska is the most fascinating because we really don't know. Also of interest is the fact that Pat Roberts has a tough primary in um, Kansas, and it's, it, there's some analogies here to Cochran. Here you've got a guy that's been around five terms. So there's a lot of different things to tease apart, but there's a very good chance of the Republicans taking the Senate back. Alan Moore? Yeah, I would. Uh, John said 50-50. I, I think a lot of people are a lot smarter on this stuff than I am, which 
which uh, doesn't have to be that smart because this is really getting into the weeds when you're looking across the races. But but uh, a lot of the real pros uh, give the Republicans an edge in the 60-40 uh, probability range of of taking a majority. The devil again is in is in the details. So there's 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 a, a whole host of ways that the Republicans can get there. But we're months out, and some of these races are 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 separated now by anywhere from one to four points. And then there's margins of error that that go into any of these polling calculations. So there's there's a lot of guesswork and there's a lot of vulnerability, if you will, to bigger uh, events somehow intervening. The the activities down on the border, for example, uh, could help or hurt one party or the other or uh, people in in particular states. Um, If the economy should have uh, some kind of a break, if the stock market should have a big drop, like some people think it will, that could influence people's thinking. The president himself, his approval ratings have continued to fall. Gallup showed him last week, drop under 40. Um, that's the first. Uh, the, there, there's other polls that show that uh, big majorities above 60% don't think that he is competently managing the country. But he's not running. He's not running, but he's not invisible, and the and and the and the the Democrats, you know, have to, especially if they have supported him and these incumbents, Landrew and Pryor, uh, they're they're all being tied to him, just as the Republicans were being tied to George Bush uh, uh, in the past. Carl Tubin, you know, you talk about Iowa. Iowa's got a Democratic, strong Democratic Party. And I was always produced a very strong ground game. Uh, <clears throat> the other, the other part is, is that the Obama campaign has shared a lot of its ground game techniques with a lot of states around the country, and you've got you've got uh, that going for you. And it worked in it worked two years ago, and it could work this time. <clears throat> the um, you also have in uh, in the state of uh, South Dakota, you've got a uh, young man who's now completed almost two times going to every city in the state running against a governor who got a very low uh, turnout uh, in in his victory. And Rick Whalen might just upset Governor Round in that in that general. Okay, hold hold, hold on. Okay, one little factoid. Mike Brown is currently up 27 points. That would be quite the uh, that would be quite the upset. Dan Lipner. So to, to, to what Carl's talking about, it's called it's called the Bannock Street Project, which is the DCCC's attempt to uh, bring the Obama ground game to the Senate race. It is being very well funded, and at the same time, it's also trying to keep the president off the ballot. However, one of those little inconvenient little issues floating out there is and uh, is the uh, Republican base desire to impeach the president, which could only help the Democratic ground game as far as turning out the base. That could be a game changer nationwide if this should occur. I suspect Speaker Boehner is more 
it is while a weak speaker is strong enough to keep that from occurring. I, I'm glad to hear they're drinking the uh, impeachment Kool-Aid because only Democrats are talking about it. Yeah. Only Democrats loser. and Sarah Palin. Okay, okay. Sort of the same thing. Not exactly. Carl, Carl, exactly. Carl Tuvin. Oh, Carl's out of it. Let, let's look at some of the individual races real quick. I, you know, when, when we look at the races, I count seven toss-ups, uh, according to a couple of sources, including our friends at the New York Times. Uh, North Carolina, we mentioned North Carolina as being a toss-up. Kay Hagan, the incumbent, has got a very serious, serious race going in the Tar Heels state. You've got a 64% leaning Democrat electorate right now. However, those Democrats have not been big fans of Kay Hagan, and that could easily go back to an independent vote that could strong that could give a strong turnout. No, I don't but, agree with no, that. You don't. Oh, Denise, Denise Crap. Right, let's, let's talk. Kay Hagan's doing something that Liddy Dole didn't do. Kay Hagan went home. That's part of the reason Liddy Dole, a Republican, got the big boot. Liddy didn't go home for six years, so Kay's gone home. Kay's also been very supportive of the military. That is her prime source right there. The other smart move that has occurred both on the Democratic and the Republican side is they figured out what to do with the VA. There is a huge veterans population in North Carolina, and God tells either Kay Hagan or Tom Phillips that they had to solve this, because that's all anybody would have been chattering about in August. Tom Phillips, strong candidate for the Republicans, but he's got a little problem. They haven't gotten the budget solved in North Carolina, and so you get that budget solved. Dear Tom, can't go fundraise. That's going to be a big problem for us. Bob Hines. And my understanding is that Phyllis, uh, who is in the legislature, the Speaker. Speaker of the House, and the governor are loggerheads on this issue, the budget. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it just makes it difficult for Tillis to get anything done. And it makes it, you know, it highlights the problems when you've got Republican on Republican. Yeah, those exactly. Those can't get along in one state. What are you doing here? Dan Lipner. Well, unfortunately, I also I have to throw in the, unfortunately for the Democrats, uh, the Democratic Party in North Carolina is a mess. Uh, the, the state party is, is putting up for sale its headquarters uh, in order to meet its budget issues. That being said, uh, North Carolina is also one of the, Frontline states, as far as, far as the attempts to uh, to voter suppression, and minority voters traditionally do not respond well uh, when that's attempted. And coming back to beating the dead horse, the GOTV effort will be taken seriously, and it in a southern state. And by GTV, you mean get out the vote? Yes, yeah, get okay. out the vote effort. Sorry. So okay, Denise Krupp. In the House of Representatives for, the, for North Carolina, and that's you've got two senior North Carolinians that are retiring out this year. You've got McIntyre, who represented the seventh district, who replaced Charlie Rose 20 years ago, who held that seat for 20 years, and then you've got Howard Kogel, mm-hmm. who's been there for 30 or 40 years. For North Carolina to lose those two senior members is going to be huge for the state, which is why they need to keep Pagan in there so she can keep the seniority that the state needs. Yeah, but uh, Alan Moore, I mean. Yeah, but that's, of course, that's a double edged sword. Well, hold on, Alan Moore. No, no, no. I mean, it's not that that's kind of inside, inside the Beltway conversation that is relevant, but it doesn't seem to to resonate with voters particularly. It used to, but it 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 really doesn't. Uh, this one is going to be a close one. Um, look at Georgia for that argument. Excuse me. Purdue ran by saying, well, look, hold, off on that. hold off on that because I want to get to one because Purdue's an interesting figure in a very interesting race. But as far as North Carolina is concerned, when we look at North Carolina as being a toss up state, 
If you were to bet right now, North Carolina, does it stay blue? Does Kay Hagan survive? Kay Hagan wins. Alan Moore? It's a, still a toss-up for me. In, in, my, in my totals later, I'll, I'll predict that the Republicans will win either North Carolina or a different state. Okay. So it's, uh, I, think it's, I think it's very close. Let's talk, let's talk a little bit right now about Colorado and Mark Udall's uh, venture right now. Right now, the I, New I York... Think Colorado is nearly the toss-up that some might say it appears to be right now. I think what you're seeing is a small surge for Cory Gardner at the very beginning of the campaign before the ground game has kicked in. And by the way, on that score, Democrats want Obama's organization, Obama's ground game, and they don't want Obama. And that is the strategy. Can Mark Udall use that to capitalize a win for him in Colorado? You bet. Mark Udall is a little bit like Kay Hagan. He's gone home. He's paid attention. He got religion early that he was in a difficult campaign, and Colorado is, stre- is trending pretty strongly blue. Alan Moore? I think that, uh, I, I think that, that Colorado, uh, and we'll, we'll mention Michigan, but I think these are states where Republicans' hopes go sky high. The polls show that the races are close, but it ends up being fool's gold. And they tend to lose in the end. That that's happened. Uh, are you talking? Are you talking about? Elections. Are you talking about an Eric Cantor situation no, no, where no, the no, polls I'm, seem to have him at thirty percent, and the reality comes no, in? No, no, oh, no. Wait I'm a talking minute. about a, you know the, the 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 fact that they they look good. They'll poll well. They'll be up one or two points, even right up to the end. Last time. When, when Michael Bennett, the current senator, it, I, I think his opponent was up one and a half points at the end, and he won by one and a half points. And and uh, I'm guessing that uh, that that Udall will will pull it out. And and uh, you know, there's things about that state we don't know. If if you know, there's if if something bad happens in Colorado regarding uh, marijuana usage, for example, I was going to bring that up. You got a bunch of, Free Hemp Tuesday on election day? No, no, no. I'm thinking of if you have some some kind of accidents uh, that occur. The feds still say it's illegal. So with the Senate, it doesn't matter. So no, no, no. But but, and what I don't even what I don't know is 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 where Udall and Gardner are on that issue. I'm guessing they're probably saying you know the state has spoken, but uh, just weird things can happen. because you, you brought up the marijuana vote, because marijuana is going to play, I think, in at least two other states other than Colorado. I think it could be a factor uh, that could actually Oregon. help. I, Oregon's another one. I think I think it's going to be in Colorado. This could be a helpful tool for uh, Mark Udall to retain that seat. I think it's going to stay blue. I mean, he's up four right now, but again, that could go either way. There's a long time know, between now and November, but I. I I, I agree. Udall's not going anywhere. Udall's fine. He's he's not gap prone. The state's Democratic Party is in good shape. Um, right now, the polls may have I agree that, that may have tightened briefly, but in the long run, Udall's not going anywhere. It's a bubble. Let, let, let's look at Alaska because Alaska sure. is a very very interesting interesting race. Why are we fascinated, John Freshman, by the Alaska race, and why is Mark Begich? possibly in trouble. Well, or the other thing is, why is Mark Begich doing so well in, in a Republican state in an off year with an incredibly unpopular president, particularly in Alaska? <laughs> we don't know who he's going to run against. 
either meet Treadwell or a guy named Sullivan. That's part of your answer. Well, we don't know. I mean, we don't know. We don't know whether we're going to have an independent. We don't know. It's Alaska. We might have a write-in with somebody's name that you can't spell, so you have to write it out on name pads so they're going to know how to write it in and get the spelling right so they won't be disqualified. I mean, Alaska, you know, is Alaska. But, uh, uh, forget, you know, he's, again, I mean, his father died in a plane crash with Hale Boggs. Right. So we got a Louisiana-Alaska thing going there. I'm amazed that Begich is doing as well as he is. But, but it strikes me as odd, uh, Alan Moore, that, again, much like you, John, I'm surprised that Mark Begich is doing as well in a very, very, one would consider blood-red Alaska. He's not your typical blue-type Democrat in the Senate for them. We, we don't know who his opponent is yet. So whenever you poll, you, you poll him against three different people. When he has an when he has uh, a candidate, and, and one of those candidates is a former attorney general who's sort of the, the national party choice. Uh, Vegas is up twelve on him, but but he's oh, up on, but he's up only two on the lieutenant governor in, in these early polls. I think that one's going to get really interesting and tight. But in, in, until there's until right. there's an opponent right. who's identified. Uh, I, I think all of these, the, all this polling data is garbage. Denise Krupp? Begich is doing so well because Begich does very well constituent services. Before Begich was Senate, he was the mayor of Anchorage, and he learned, you know, in that job what you needed to do to make sure that you were reelected. So when he went to the Senate side, I mean, he was known for pulling people in. I mean, my first trip to Alaska was because of Begich. He called up and said, I'm not happy with something, you know, something your agency is doing. Meet me in Anchorage. Wow, I, I could have, you know, met him in D.C., but no, it was me, me, and I want you to see how you're screwing up. He, he does that to everybody, and that's a good thing. Carl Tubin? Well, there was an article in the paper just last week <clears throat> that Vegas goes home, and he tells people how he has gotten things for Alaska, that he's uh, thrown in the president's side, and, uh, and he does these things, and then he goes in, and he asks for the jets to right. stay here, and he asks right. for a hospital here. And that has been very good for him. He's been doing it consistently for weeks. Alan Moore. I think, I think it's pretty clear that Begich is a good politician. I think it's also clear, and this is a huge unknown, that he's an accidental senator. He beat Ted Stevens because Ted Stevens was under indictment, and then the, the Justice Department was embarrassed and humiliated by the way it had handled it. What I don't know, it's hard to know, and of course Ted Stevens later died in a plane crash, what, what, what I don't know is whether any of that plays, whether there's any of the sense that this guy didn't deserve to be a senator, maybe we need to do something for old Ted who died out of the deal. I don't know, I'm not predicting that, but there's, there's strange things out Denise there that, that can come into play. No, Denise? I, I disagree with that. I, mean, I do a lot of work with Alaskans, and, and that's not something they're saying we need to do something for dear dead is thank you mark for what you've been doing for the state keep on doing it see i i got i gotta disagree with that in one instance because talking to everybody outside of anchorage you start going out into barrow you start going down into the peninsula into in, in uh uh, if you're talking, if you're going to go talk Valdez, you're going to talk about Kodiak, you're going to talk about Sitka, you're going to talk about all of them. They're all well, you, I'm, I'm talking about going as far south as Juneau, which has largely been a moderate Democratic stronghold. They're all saying this could be a Republican win in the Senate. It could be, but again, he not only does constituent services, but he's got good staffers. And from what I've seen with, you know, Austin before, if you've got a good staff, that tells you what's possible. 
and that's what I, you know, I know it's not only personally, but I've seen the work. He's a good guy. Ted, Ted Stevens used to bring hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars per year to the state. Begich, to his credit, is trying to say, oh, yeah, I've done this. I'm a thorn in the president's side. But, but, but in, in the broader, the rules have changed. Even if Ted Stevens were in the Senate, he wouldn't be bringing as much home, but he would be bringing plenty home. John Stevens, this is a situation of who's more like Ted Stevens? Well, dwell on that. The rules have changed, and bringing it home and what we used to consider to be the qualities of a good senator aren't necessarily the things that make you electable today. I don't think any of us that have ever served in government like it, but it's a fact. And, you know, Alan Moore and I worked in the Senate. He worked for John Danforth. I worked for Ed Muskie. You know, it was a different era. The rules have changed. And this election is a place to look to see how much the rules have changed and how much it's going to affect things going forward. Congressman Al Swift. I think they've changed, but they've also changed and changed back in one sense. Ted Stevens was of the Warren Magnuson generation. <clears throat> and <clears throat> I bring up Warren Magnuson because Maggie brought billions of dollars home to Washington State all the time. And his people always would tell you they'll never beat Warren Magnuson because he brings so much hope. The fact is, most of the public didn't know he was bringing it home. I mean, you didn't talk about it. You were chairman of the Appropriations Committee. Of course you bring it home. And that was Ted Stevens' situation. Does a, a, a young guy who can't bring a tenth of the money that these old guys used to bring home, but who's out making headlines with every single dollar he brings home, may, in fact, have the effect that has been suggested. Well, you go real quickly. Does Begich retain the seat? John Freshman? No. Alan Moore. I, I, I put him... He hedges every time. You notice that? <laughs> yeah. He hasn't changed a bit. He's also been no, on every week. Changed. He's been on every week. We've tried to handicap this stuff. <laughs> it's impossible. The Republicans win either Alaska or North Carolina. I don't know which. So okay. We're going to take a break. Before we go to break, right now, uh, CNN is reporting breaking news that the Hamas leadership has rejected the latest truce proposal no. put forward shocking. by... No. News? Shocking. Right. Not news. <laughs> Just reporting it as I see it, kids. Hey, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion on the midterm elections in 2014 in the Senate. Who's going to win when we come back on Backroom Politics? By the way, it's happy hour. Time for us to order our drinks, break it open our cigars, and we'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches blended, single malt, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelly's Back Room, 
1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., as everybody rejoins the table during happy hour. Uh, hey, May, can I get my drink, too? Thank you, ma'am. Hey, uh, we're going to continue on talking about the uh, upcoming midterm Senate races. Big, big, big races and the toss-ups and the possibility that the Republicans might retake the Senate. We're talking about that right now. Joining us is our good friend and special guest, John Freshman. Uh, let's go back and look at some of the toss-up states. Let's now talk about Michigan. You've got an open seat in Michigan. Michigan, which has been bleeding blue for the longest amount of time, now seems like it could be either a Republican or a very narrow, narrow victory for Democrats. John? I think Michigan falls in the Colorado category without an incumbent. You've got a slight surge by a a recently... uh, a candidate who has recently won the primary and uh, 
and she's showing some good numbers. But and I also think that the uh, Democrats' uh, campaign has been a little unsteady. But the pros will move in there. Michigan is a blue state. It ain't gonna happen. Alan Moore, you agree with that? I do. Uh, I think it's, uh, and I agree with the with the link to Colorado. Uh, the, the the Republican candidate, a former Secretary of State, is actually up a point. Um, I think it's fool's gold again. You know, they'll get they'll get they'll they'll put money in there. They'll get excited. They'll get tempted. Uh, the unions will step up. <laughs> and, and, and get to get really engaged. There'll be plenty of money in there on both sides, and I'm guessing that this one falls uh, where it historically has been. What's, uh, so, it, the what's so interesting side. about Michigan is, and it's where the Republican strength really is nationally, is you've got a Republican governor who's doing very well and could easily get overwhelmingly reelected, but I don't think that's going to carry over into the Senate race. Okay. Rick Snyder has done a great job. I think anybody on any party would have to agree with that. But it's definitely one to watch. Yeah, absolutely. It's really, it's, it's, it's watch them all. Let, let's look at Iowa. Yeah. Iowa is going to be a ra- uh, raging. Well, you're, you're, you're grimacing when we talk about Iowa, Dan. Uh, you've got a Democratic Party that's in trouble, yet you've got a strong Democratic uh, hold in the major urban areas, i.e. Des Moines, where there's a large concentration of liberal voters. Yeah, Ames is in the same boat. Uh, can, can the Democrats get a win in Iowa? Why don't you take Iowa first? Well, our side, the problem is, in as good a candidate as Bruce Braley was, uh, the a candidate unleashed uh, when running in a safe seat suddenly uh, for House, uh, g- not learning the tools of the trade going forward, occasionally makes mistakes. And in this case, Bruce Bailey's mistake, going after farmers in what he thought was an off-the-record meeting uh, with, I believe, the ABA, uh, that, caught, that has now made him look... Uh, shall we say, insensitive to what his uh, principal constituency would be. How, how many times do they all, all of them, have to learn that there is no off-the-record? Right. Yeah. You'd, you'd think that that would be smart, but apparently not. Or you could be a freshman Republican congressman from Florida on your Foreign Affairs Committee and telling senior executives in government, mistaking <laughs> them for Indian government officials. Brilliant. Brilliant. I was, I'll talk about that in my tell me a story. You can also be a secretary of state and make the same mistake. Yeah, that, 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 too, is true. That, too, is true. Uh, let's what, 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 one other thing about Iowa. Uh, let's give credit to the Republican candidate, this woman, Joni Ernst, too, that, who has come from nowhere. She had the famous uh, gone viral YouTube ad where she talked about how she was cutting the nuts off of pigs uh, from the time she was a child, and she planned to take those skills to, uh, to Washington. And, and, and family it, show, and it, family show. And it, <laughs> and it worked for her, and, and she has continued to have Did she do a, well with uh, the men's vote on she, that? <laughs> The eunuch, she's got that. The Lorena campaign, the Lorena Baba campaign. Uh, let's let's move a little bit to a really interesting one that's gotten a lot of national attention. This is Georgia. Yeah, let's go to Georgia. Georgia is a really interesting race where you have the daughter of a revered senator who everybody, even to this day, still talks to him in the same language as they do Tip O'Neill. 
uh, as far as beloved Democrats in this town by both sides, uh, going up against a really politically savvy outsider in Purdue. You've got uh, you, but Purdue comes from a noted political family. His cousin, I believe, was governor of Georgia for many years. He was governor when I was uh, working in law enforcement down there in Georgia, and they still love the Purdue name down in Georgia. John Freshman, how does a name, no name like none, beat a no name like Purdue? I think Georgia, in a lot of ways, is the most fascinating, or among them. It's still, of course, red, but it's trending in a different direction. The demographics are changing, maybe not in time for this race, but they're changing in Georgia. You've got Sam Nunn, who's the nephew of a chairman of the House Appropriations Committee. His daughter's running. There's nothing that he won't do to get her elected. Sam Nunn is all in. Purdue ran as the, I don't know anything about Washington, I'm not from Washington. You had three congressmen in the primary, two kind of right-wing one, Republicans. One very strong one in Jack Kingston. Who he the third is Jack Kingston. All of the smart money was hoping Jack Kingston was going to win the primary. Uh, the corporate money, if you can call it that, they were all in for Kingston. And Kingston got beat by Purdue, which says exactly what you're saying that Purdue is good. I think we're in for a hell of a race, and because Purdue is so strong, go with the red state back. But Alan Moore, Alan Moore, a lot of people say that Purdue came in as a quote-unquote Tea Party candidate, yet every time you hear Purdue talk, he's talking like a moderate. He's not politically bashing people. He's not. He, he's not going out of his way to... Uh, demagogue or anything like that. This is a, a, a very strong, moderate, business-savvy Republican outsider. This guy is showing uh, a lot of, uh, uh, of restraint in, in how he acts and behaves, and that's a good sign. He has to hope he doesn't make mistakes. Uh, Michelle Nunn has to hope she doesn't make mistakes. She has been very, very hesitant to take positions on issues and has taken flack from even the likes of of uh, Mika Brzezinski for that fact, and she's usually in the tank for the Dems. Um, she, she, has a, she has an interesting uh, background and history. Uh, she's taking flack for the $300,000 salary she gets for running this Points of Light Foundation. There's, there's, a, there's a, a variety of issues that float around. Just last week, her uh, some strategy papers from last year uh, were released uh, discussing some of her perceived weaknesses she would have to work on, fundraising strategies, and where her votes would come from. And there's aspects of that that, uh, that, are, that are getting attention. I think that, 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 that John got it exactly right in that the demographics are changing in Georgia, but I think this is fool's gold for Democrats that that it will stay uh, it'll stay Didn't, Republican if Purdue doesn't screw it up. Denise Crack. God bless the Purdue Kingston race. I mean, nobody expected to have a runoff in Georgia, and because there was one, we got to hear lots and lots of lovely news about both of them. So you know, when you talk about none not saying anything, why not just sit back, eat your popcorn, and watch the two of them go at it? Now that being said, now that they've decided who's going to you know be the 
person in Georgia from the Republican Party, it's going to be a fundraising issue for Purdue. I mean, he went to a lot of money. I mean, they were going around the country to get that money from Georgia. I mean, far away, you know, trying to California up in the Northwest. Now you got to come home. Now you got to get the money. And now you have to fight against Nunn, who hasn't been saying anything because, again, she's been watching that. But by the way, Purdue is not without means himself. You're talking about the former CEO of Reebok, the former CEO of Family, Family Dollar Store. This is a man who has made a ton of money in retail and could go all in. Could go all in on a war yeah, chest. Right, he could go all in. And I mean, the race I remember. The most expensive one up to that point was the Hunt Helms race in Georgia, and on Georgia, North Carolina, where everybody's like, you went over a million dollars. I think this race here in Georgia is going to be the most expensive one we have seen to date because it is changing. The state is changing so much. The demographics, I mean, when I was born in Atlanta, there were whites and they were black. Very blunt. That's not what the state looks like anymore, and right. the demographics have changed so well, you, much. Well, you've got different you've got different demographics in Georgia, John Freshman. You've got you've got the liberal uh, you've got the li- moderate liberal vote in Atlanta. You've got the song you've got the song of the South population down in Savannah in the Low Country, and then everywhere in between bleeds blood red. You've also got the grandsons of the people that fled the South. When they all moved north to the jobs in the recession and, of course, to get away from Jim Crow, the first jobs they got were, you know, menial jobs. Their kids got educated. They got jobs in state government. Their kids benefited from affirmative action. They went to good schools. They're professionals. They're moving back to the south, but they're not moving back to Mississippi. They're not moving back to Alabama. They're They're moving moving back to Atlanta. And they're wealthy, and, and there's no they here. You know what I mean. But yeah, they're no, no. wealthy, and they're educated, and they're and they're smart, and they're going to change Georgia. I just don't know whether it's going to happen. And Georgia, and, and Alan Moore, whether it's going to happen yet. Alan Moore, Georgia's got a very diverse population. You've got a strong conservative Jewish vote in Atlanta that could help Purdue. At the same time, you have a strong politically active minority community, not just in Atlanta. But in areas like Savannah, Valdosta, Athens, right. that could be very helpful to a nun campaign. Well, it's a pretty, it, was, it was interesting in, in the strategy paper that was laid out because it was quite telling. They, they, have, to get, they have to get turnout up to a certain level, and then they have to win 90-plus percent. Okay, this is none because it was the nun paper. Uh, that that they, they need to get turnout up to a certain level, and turnout in these off elections is really hard. And... and and even though the demographics are changing, that doesn't mean the turnout will. And then they then they are expecting 95 plus percent of the African American vote, um, and 70 to 80 percent of the Hispanic and other minorities vote, and 30 percent of the white vote. And that's all laid out in the paper. And it's and it's and it's kind of it it it's makes sense, but it's also kind of shocking when you read that and you wonder whether that kind of stuff has any impact on. The, the 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 voters in Georgia, one way or the other. Carl Tuvin. You also, you also have another factor. You're going to have you have the daughter of Sam Nunn running to the Senate. You got a governor that mm, is in trouble, and you got the grandson of a former president, Jason Carter, who's running for governor, who was a two-term state senator now running for governor. Politics the the game the whole family can play. <laughs> You know, a lot of people are saying, you know, how is the Carter 
the father grandfather card are going to impact the son, but you're going to have two names of famous politicians running in Georgia, and that could they could help one another. Dan Lipner? Well, to Alan's point, the strategy paper, I, I, most people around this table have seen these things. This isn't big news that you have to come up with a win formula to win, especially for a close race. Um, the idea that a Democrat is going to need a, a strong get-out-the-vote uh, system machine to actually turn out the people that we need uh, is the line that Jerry Springer said when he thankfully did not run for Senate, that if even half the people that watched my show voted, Democrats would never lose. And to that end, uh, the fact that there are all the juniors on the ballot does suggest that Georgia is changing. And the question is whether or not deal is actually going to be a weight against the Republican ticket. But here, here's, here's one factor that everybody's missing in the Georgia race is the idea that you've got Purdue, who's very fiscally conservative, is looking for budget cuts, and has even stated publicly in past uh, interviews that defense is not the holy grail. He'd be looking at that. Does the defense industry go to a strong ally like Sam Nunn and back the daughter? No, no. Sam Nunn goes to the defense industry and says, after all I did for you, you better help my daughter out. Alan Moore, is that a play factor here? You know, hard to know. I, I, I was in the Senate when Sam Nunn was around. I knew the man a little bit. I have a lot of respect for him. I mean, you're, big, you're talking General Dynamics, the, Boeing he's money? He's been out of the Senate for a very long time. I don't know how this changing demographic that we're talking about in Atlanta feels about the guy who left the Senate 18-plus years ago. It's a long time. They love I'm him down there. Although he can they love him the down there. The money. Well, money, money. Money, money is important, but the, but the they who love him, I'm guessing, is a smaller and smaller group of people. It's sort of like Jimmy Carter, who, you know, he was a native son. They care about him. This is his grandson now we're talking about. Um, I'm not sure how much, how much heft Jimmy Carter has in getting people to Denise, out for his grandson. Denise Kraft. And that means Northrop Grumman money, among others. Anybody in Georgia, though, is going to say, oh, yeah, close one down. That's fine. Cut it down. They're all going to take that position, and none of them are going to, are going to start out with any significant power. Let's be clear. Institutional money is going to hedge their bets. If the, the race is as close as it is, they're going, to, they're going to split their time on both sides. Institutional money wants to protect the institution. They, they're, they're not ideological. They are in, their, in it for their own interests. Well, <laughs> Bob Hines? Okay. Uh, John Freshman? None or Purdue? Purdue. Alan Moore? Purdue. I agree, Purdue. All right. Let's move on to the great state of Louisiana, where money buys votes and family name buys money. Uh, you've got Mary Landrew in a really tough race right now, something that a lot of people, even in Louisiana, didn't think was possible on that, on, on that name alone. 
John Freshman, this has got the Dems worried that the Landry name isn't holding the luster it used to. Well, it's that. She's a very good candidate. She's every bit as good a candidate as Kay Hagan is. But she's got bad luck coming up this year, getting to be chairman of the Energy Committee at a time when people are questioning the value of pork when you've, when you've just had a gigantic oil spill. Uh, you know, we're still in the wake. We're still in the wake of that catastrophic blowout. Katrina. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Uh, oh, oh, of the, the Deepwater the Horizon oil, oil spill. Correct. You got that. You have got a very good candidate and and had an easy road to the to the nomination. There was no right wing Tea Party action in Louisiana. I I think that that she's a very good candidate, but I think he is too. I I think that's one of the genuine toss ups that we really don't know yet. I don't think. I don't think his strength is the fool's goal that we've been talking but about. Al- I think his strength is real. But Alan Moore, though, he, Mary Landrieu, the Landrieu name had a rough time when her brother just went through a re-election, and he was largely thought to be a lame duck, would have lost. He pulls out, surprisingly in Louisiana politics, a minor win to retain the mayor's mansion in New Orleans. Is the is the Landrieu political machine as strong as it used to be? Well, I don't know how about the machine, but I but I I've watched her now. I remember 12 years ago when I was working for Bill Frist in the Senate, and he was running the the Republican Senatorial Committee, and I was present when the two of them bet a steak dinner on the outcome of her race because she was in play 12 years ago. And she pulled it out and got her steak dinner from Bill Frist. There was, you know, the Senate's such a weird place because they could joke about it, laugh about it. He could raise money, and he didn't ever trash her, but but he certainly supported her opponent, and uh, she won that one. Six years later, she had an easier time, but I think her numbers up this time. I think that she's been skating on thin ice, and she now, I think she's a better candidate than Hagan, but it's from a tougher state. And, and a tougher situation, and I think that, that the string runs out here, and I, I think she loses. And Denise Crap. I, I can tell you this administration has not done her any favor. Mm. I mean, when you start talking about the Deepwater Horizon spill and the release of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, they didn't use any Louisiana vessel when they moved 30 million barrels a day. Now, she complained, but they didn't use anything. Well, and and that, that's that's, that's going to hurt her. And that is that gonna is hurt definitely going to hurt and it's going to hurt her. And, you know, it's it, those types of things that you think that the administration would say, hey, Mary, you know, we need to help you. You would have we, thought it, but they've done it so many times that you don't think well, it we've anymore. Got, we've got five I minutes. surprised when they do it. Well, we, we've, got, we've got five minutes left in the segment. I want to, uh, Denise brings up a very valuable point. We'll go on to the other races in the next uh, half hour. But the Obama coattails, a lot of people running from the Obama coattails in this cycle. Is is that going to help? Is Obama a hindrance or is he a help? Well, first and, Dan for, Lipner. First and foremost, there have never been Obama coattails. <laughs> no, I, I mean this from, from his run in 2008. There were no coattails. In his re-election, there were no coattails. He hasn't even got and, his pants on. <laughs> okay. I don't, wanna, I, I, sure. I, I don't want to know how you know that. But, uh, no, but so but that's how short it is. <laughs> no, Lord. O- Obama has never had coattails, and it's been principally because of how how he's run his White House and how he's run his campaign. Um, it, within internal, aside from helping to raise money, which he has been very helpful on. Other than that, the on-the-ground politics, he has been helpful to almost no Democratic politician. That being said, Louisiana uniquely 
is probably going to be one of the races where national politics is actually going to be in play, in which case Obama is going to be an anchor around Landrum. Carl Tubin. Landrum has brought a lot of technology money to Louisiana, and, and that you can't, you don't have earmarks anymore, but she's still able, has been able, because of her positions, to bring money to the state. And that could be a factor. Interesting point. Uh, when we come back, we're going to finish up the discussion. Midterm Senate discussion. John Freshman, you got something else? Kentucky. I'm going to finish up strong with Kentucky when we come back in our next segment, our final half hour here on Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Everybody knows Shelley's Back Room for its corporate events, its happy hours, its famous campfire wings and spurred cigars and drinks. But what you didn't know is that Shelley's is open during the weekend, too. In fact, Shelley's Back Room on the weekends even has a non-smoking section. You can bring your family, your kids, enjoy the same campfire wings and same glorious food that you enjoy during the week, but without the famous Shelley's Cigar environment. Also during the weekend, it's football season. That means a lot of the regulars come down and enjoy their drinks and their favorite cigars, all while watching their favorite local teams, whether it's the Ravens, the Redskins, on several HD screens throughout the place. So remember, Shelly's Back Room. It's not just for happy hours anymore. 1331 F Street, the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., official sponsor of Backroom Politics. On the elevation, on the shelf, they misbehaving, saving my love for you and you, especially you. Yeah. I know for certain the one I love. I'm through with flirting as you that I'm thinking of. Ain't misbehaving, saving all my love for you. Like that honor in a corner, don't go nowhere. About eight at my little radio Ain't misbehaving Saving my love for you For you, for you Yes, you All my love for you Yes, that's what I'm talking about And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital Washington, D.C. <clears throat> this is the best political talk show you've never heard of Backroom Politics live in Washington, D.C. on Bob Talk Radio. You know, while we're waiting for everybody to regather... Well, Bob and I are the only ones here. We want to talk about hey. redistricting. <laughs> no, no. We would like to actually keep our audience this time. Good Lord. I give you one redistricting show, and everything goes to pot. My God. Uh, let's talk about something a lot more interesting, i.e., the race for the Senate in Kentucky. The Kentucky race has got everybody's attention. This has got national implica implications. It's got a huge, huge impact on possibly Republican leadership. 
John Freshman. The Democrats have a strong candidate in Kentucky. She's come out strong. She's come out very, very aggressively against the Senate Minority Leader. Is it enough in a in a in a what some would consider a purple state like Kentucky to take out the Republican Minority Leader in Mitch McConnell? Thanks. I never thought I would say that this state is going to end up being a true toss-up, but I actually believe this one is a toss-up. I think that there are enough deficiencies in McConnell's campaign and enough strength by her that we could have a situation, honestly, where the Republicans win the Senate and the leader loses. And I think that is fascinating. What? We're talking about the effect of Obama, of course, the so-called war on coal, it's not particularly helpful, but it's not, that is not a single-edged sword. You know, demographics are changing. People are changing. Natural gas is what's displaced coal, not greenhouse gas emissions, period. And people know that. Kentucky's rich in other natural resources. This is a true race. Uh, Alan Moore, what is making Mitch McConnell so vulnerable? Well, have you ever looked at him? Well, <laughs> He's the most sour-faced individual in the United States Senate. Oh, all right, but, but wait, wait, is this a, wait, is this a question? Let me ask this question. Let me rephrase it another way. Is Mitch McConnell that vulnerable, or is Grimes that strong? Well, there is the, <laughs> the race is closer than it needs to be. It's fool's gold for Democrats, to continue my little fool's gold metaphor. He will win. But he's going to have to spend more money, work more time at it, uh, face it. And Al actually did touch on something that's interesting. Initially, I was going to trash his comment, but but he is not the warm and fuzzy guy that you know that you you like to have with a politician. But he's really smart and he's really uh, effective in his role with Republicans, and they know that and they appreciate that and but, they. They're going to rally around this guy, and and there'll be massive amounts of of money. The the the, the Democrats are are sort of sniffing and tasting something, but I think it all turns to uh, to stone in the end, and uh, and McConnell comes. And yeah, but Alan Alan Moore, Grimes is attractive, younger than McConnell, has a very moderate. Base and independent votes following her in Kentucky. She's part of the, uh, you know, part of the reason the Democrats get get uh, get get uh, you know all excited about it. It's just, you know she's uh, she's know, energetic. She's but everything that they want in Kentucky. Well, except for her politics and her <laughs> her, 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 her her closeness. Kentucky has a very popular closeness. Democrat governor who matters in this race. Unlike some other states. Dan Lipner? Well, in addition to Alan's point, though, the loss of money is also going to be a giant sucking sound to every other Republican out there. Uh, much like Tom Daschle defending his seat was a giant sucking sound to every other Democrat. And when, when the leader of your party is really being challenged, yeah, you're going to throw in everything you have, including the kitchen sink. That being said, McConnell is in real trouble. And with Grimes being the quality candidate she is, uh, she has real potential, and the governor is actually going to put his thumb on the scale in her favor. Denise Crap. Well, and you brought up the fact that you've got the money that's being sucked out. You also talk about time. I mean, if Mitch McConnell's going to be very concerned about the race, the question's going to be, 
what does he focus on in the Senate? Can he focus on what he needs to be focusing on in the Senate? Or does he have to keep his head looking behind going, geez, I wonder who's nipping at my coat here? Nothing happens well, in the Senate all, anyway. If right only now. Harry <laughs> Reid were trying to make something happen in the Senate, yeah, that but, might be an issue. But Alan's point is right. That, it, the, the, no, but the, the, <laughs> fact, the fact that... The fact that the leadership of both the Democrats and the Republicans in the Senate are, are relatively common names, and that is a bad formula. Americans don't like seeing how the sausage is made. And, and both Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell are not beloved. When they are national figures that are identifiable, that's a losing proposition. Bob Lines? The uh, minority leader in the Senate may not be beloved in a whole lot of places, but he is in Kentucky. I, I, uh, I, don't, I don't see him losing. I think he'll win because there's too many interests, there's too many interests in Kentucky that he supports, and I think he will win. I've got to tell you something. Just, just being in Kentucky yesterday, it struck me. What were you doing there? On my way back from Missouri. Uh-huh. <laughs> what were you doing in Missouri? Uh, I'll tell you afterwards. We so, <laughs> anyway, just being in Kentucky yesterday, and seeing some of the political ads that are being put up right now, some of the back and forth that we're seeing in Kentucky, I've got to tell you, I did not think that Mitch McConnell could even remotely possibly lose. But the campaign that Grimes is putting up, and I'm a Republican saying this, is oddly distressing to Republicans because she's putting up a modern upfront, technologically savvy, money-raising at the dollar level type campaign that is reminiscent of an out-of-nowhere Democrat who runs for Senate, i.e. Barack Obama. It seems that there's a lot of closeness to the ideologies of their campaign that could spell trouble for the traditionalist campaign that Mitch McConnell has. What a perfect selling point for her. I'm just like Barack Obama. Yeah. Vote for me. I'm not saying that it's, I'm not saying that it's the coattails. But you have to admit, though. Mitch, listen, this is much closer than, than, uh, than anyone would have thought. I, I'm, I'm intrigued with Dan's comment about the, the, the sucking sound of all this money going to McConnell. Because Grimes is going to have a little bit of the same effect. Because, you know, the, the, everybody's... Sniffing the uh, uh, the uh, the glue, the, the glue here. <laughs> oh my God! We can beat McConnell. Good bail. Pour the money in. Pour the money in. I mean that one and, to, and, and North Carolina are going to be yeah, but, but grotesquely to, expensive. But uh, to Dan Lipner's point, they have a very strong Democratic governor in Kentucky that could possibly uh, that could possibly. Oh, I'm sorry. That was John Freshman's. John Freshman's analogy. I'm sorry, John. I didn't mean to take away your thunder. They've got a very strong Democratic governor right now that's got very high strong. that's got high popular ratings. And that Obamacare has, is working in North in Kentucky as well. Yeah. That, that they've got the they've got the most successful health care exchange in the country, which could bode well for a Grimes. I don't think I don't think that a lot of Repu- what strikes me in, in Kentucky is that a lot of Republicans are literally writing this off as saying it's all white noise. And it's all just noise and the fury that Mitch McConnell is going to win this hands down. I don't think it's that cut and clear. No, Alan didn't say that either. No, I'm not saying Alan did. I'm saying yeah. there are other Republicans Look, that believe this. Right. These things are all going to be close. And don't forget the anti-incumbent mindset that filters around out there that makes any and number of races McConnell's vulnerable to it as well. Yeah. He is certainly no, exactly. vulnerable. In which case, the younger, more attractive candidate 
wins that, it, it, it all things being even. Well, I don't think they're even enough, but, but it, you know, this, this the, the, the hatred of members of Congress, which is anti-incumbency, is, is alive and well out there in the land, and it can show up. And that's, you know, that's a little bit of what happened to, to Eric Cantor. Don't you know, forget that Harry Reid, and this is a good analogy, uh, beat a flawed candidate by 540 or 600 votes. A very flawed candidate. Mitch McConnell is running against a very good candidate. Yeah, very good. Carl Tubin? You also have the African-American vote in Kentucky who might react to what Mitch McConnell has said to the president, which is no. And they might, they might come out and vote heavily for, uh, for Grimes. Interesting point. Interesting point. Let's look at another open seat right now in West Virginia. Let's do. You got Rockefeller retiring, and you've got a very, very open race in West Virginia. Now, uh, many pundits believe that that's going to be strong blood red Republican. I'm not buying it. John Freshman, why am I not buying it? Well, let's go to the... uh the same old, you know, sons and daughters of people. She's the daughter of uh, Arch Moore, who was the governor, who did some time in the uh, Steel Chateau, and who also <laughs> came within a wink of beating Jennings Randolph when Jennings Randolph was a committee chairman in the state that relies on pork, and Jennings Randolph was a guy that was responsible, not Bob Bird, for all the highway money. And yet Arch Moore almost, almost won that. I think that Shelley Moore Caputo is a great candidate. I think it's a good year for her. I don't think we have a close race in West Virginia. Alan Moore? Couldn't have said it better. She's up eight right now and just getting stronger. Yeah. Against a decent candidate. Yeah. But it's, I think it's... Uh, you you I, think the Democrats can pull? Sure. The uh, no, sure Republicans yeah, can pull this off? Okay. Very interesting. Very interesting. Let's also look... Nebraska... Nebraska doesn't go blue. No, no. no, no Oklahoma, crazy. pretty much, that's Lankford's territory. No, well, you've yeah. got two races in Oklahoma. And, right. And the, you've got two races in two states, Oklahoma and one other. Which South, South Carolina. Carolina. South Carolina. Right here. And that's interesting in and of itself. You've got, uh, you've got two people that won special elections and then two people whose terms are expiring. And none of those four seats any of us would put in the contested category. Correct. That's four seats total in those two states. That's the beauty of the Senate. You know, that's not a lot of people, and they're going to get four Republican senators without basically having to break a sweat. Uh, when we look we've got, at... We've got Montana. We've got... Well, I was going to talk... I was going to get to some of them. Right. You've got uh, Montana. Well, we, since Alan brought it up, Montana is a wide-open possibility... But Not anymore. Not anymore. No. 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 Why do you think that went over and done? If I could read from Alan's notes when I go why that might be over and done in Montana, uh, that might be why it's over and done in Montana. Uh, but I, but I, I'm attributing it to Alan here. But, uh, but I'll go ahead. No, I was just you know, There's a no Steve Daniels, who was up 16 to the sitting temporary uh, unelected Senator John Walsh before he was nailed for plagiarizing his master thesis by the New York Times. So it's, it's, it's a curious case. It's a sad case, but it's... It, it's, it's done. It's, it's Republican. Done 
Yeah. 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 And I can say as a professor, I'm furious with that nut job. I mean, I, I'm a John Walsh? Yes. I, I mean, I'm a grad of the Naval War College. Good for and you. And when you can say, and your folks can hear it, which is family-friendly show, frustrated me that he's a hero, he's a military guy, he's not an academic. <laughs> <laughs> so it's okay to cheat. I'm sorry. I'm military. I'm a veteran. I'm an academic. If you are going to cheat on your papers, then you are going to cheat somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, something else really interesting here, which I think would have come into play more had it not been for what Denise just so articulately stated, which is that it is a myth to think that when you appoint a guy to a Senate seat and you think you're going to give him a leg up, that's not true. It goes way back to Wendy Anderson in Minnesota on the Democrat side. goes to Boy Hill on the Republican side. You're, you're banging your hands on the table. They can pick that up on the microphone. Right. I got to I got to remind Alan that a lot. I'm glad you did. Yeah, you're there we go. But it's a myth. You're not. You know what's you're, not, you're not helping yourself. Let no. him run it even at fair rate. You know, I'm looking at the list that that our friends at the New York Times put out as far as the Democratic strongholds, and they're exactly as you'd think that they would be. Uh, even in some places like uh, Minnesota, Al Franken's got no race there. Al Franken's a, a lock. You've got. Um, Not so. But you don't think so? No. Show no. me a scenario. Alan Moore, show I me do. a scenario where Al Franken loses. Look. Yeah, okay. I, expect, <laughs> I expect. Don't get me wrong. I expect Al Franken to win. He won last time by 312 votes. He has not just become Mr. Popular. Minnesota has this odd history now of electing some oddballs. Jesse Ventura to be governor. Al Franken, this 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 funny man, TV guy. Uh, Rudy uh, Boschwitz. Right. Rudy Boschwitz, who... Who was also a nut job. He was an odd duck. No, he was... But he was an odd duck. Um, and, and, uh, and then they tire of these guys. So I haven't... Believe me, I think he's going to prevail, but I think this is going to be... Closer and more interesting no, no, no. than we're giving credit for. It's, Dan you know, Lipner disagrees. He's, he's well, of course he's disagreeing. He always disagrees, and he's usually wrong. But his opponent is a businessman, Mike McFadden. I just think it's going to tighten. I no. think Franken will win, but I think it'll tighten. No. The, the funny man, uh, Al Franken, has not been Senator Al Franken. Al Franken has been, been very controlled. Have you seen him in committee? <clears throat> Oh my God! You're kidding me. He has not. He has not been funny man senator. He has been senator from from Minnesota, and he has been serving his state well. Uh, it's just that simple. The idea of painting him what he was for the for his first career as he's been in the Senate and isn't I, true I, right now. Congressman Al, absolutely agree with that. I mean, the, the big job he had was to to lose the the, the comedian reputation right. and demonstrate that he. And he, I think he's done uh, an excellent job of it. So we're going to elect him, re-elect him, because he's he's dropped his uh, his reputation as a comedian. No, because he's developed a reputation that is more in line with. Did you see his movie? Idea, Did you see his movie? It was horrible. He's also got a very weak opponent. Yeah, yeah. Trail. <laughs> Carl Tubin. When when he first came to the Senate, I was at a function, and I went up to him and I said, Senator, I'm glad you're here. We need a little levity in this town. And he says, no, no, I'm going to leave that all back 
in Minnesota and in New York. I'm not going to be a jokester. So <clears throat> he's done a good job. I, saw, I would like to see a little saw, more of his humor act myself, frankly. Wait a minute. I saw him about a year ago. We we talked, and I reminded him of the comment I made, and he said, "You know what? I've kind of rethought. Sometimes when I'm in a meeting." I use some levity to get a point across, and it works. So, last, last state, real quick, uh, South Dakota. Does South Dakota go red from currently? Totally, always and forever, oh, never yeah. a chance of anything else happening. You've got a uh, you've got a retiring Democrat out of South Dakota. Yeah. What's fascinating is that excuse me is that within the last ten years you had four liberal Democrats from North Dakota and South Dakota. One by one they've been switching over. Four liberal Democrats, you know, Dashiell, Johnson, Dorgan, and Conrad. It was unbelievable. It was an it was a um, it was a exception and and they're reverting to their roots. South Dakota is not in any way, shape or form la- sorry Carl. La- last one last one uh, New Jersey, Cory Booker wins hands down. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Let's go around the table real quick. Last segment is, do, what's the number? Who's winning? Congressman Al. Do the, I, I, in, the, in the Senate. In the Senate? I, I, I think uh, that the Republicans will win, and I certainly hope their leader doesn't. Bob Hines. Republicans win narrowly, 51-49. John Freshman? Democrat, 51-49. Alan Moore? Republicans, 52-48. Denise Krupp? Democrat, 51-49. Carl Tubin? Democrat, 52-48. Dan Lipner? Democrats have a net loss of two seats. The correct answer here is Republicans, 52-48. That's what we're going to go with. Now, with me. <laughs> that is the correct answer, everybody. Now then, with Thank that. Thank you, John. Thank you, God. Wrong. 5248 Republicans. Now it's time for my favorite part of the show. It's time for Tell Me a Story, where we talk about the buzz innuendo and all the goings on that we didn't cover in the Today's Show. Uh, Congressman Al, tell me a story. This is kind of a repeat of, of last week's, but we, we again spent an enormous amount of time talking about the Mideast, and it deserves the time. <clears throat> but it's, I'm, I'm increasingly convinced it's a waste of time. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing can be done. We have the problem of being a major nation that's got to somehow kind of keep the lid on it, but you ain't going to solve the Mideast. Cynical, but Okay. Bob Hines, tell me a story. I feel much the same way Al does. I think it's, I was shocked by what, the way the Secretary of State acted. I think it was a mistake. But I think Al is exactly right. It, almost nothing. A lot of smoke and mirrors. Almost nothing in the Middle East is easy to solve. And every time we try to fix something, something else breaks down. It's a mess. John Freshman, quickly, tell me a story. One of the casualties of the Kentucky Senate race, but we deserve some credit for this, too, is the absolute collapse of what should have been a rational appropriations process this year. Kyle is going to put a greenhouse gas emission rider on every appropriations bill. If you put Barbara Mikulski, the liberal of liberals, and Hal Rogers, Republican from eastern Kentucky, in a room, they could do 12 appropriations bills in about an hour. And it's... It breaks my heart because they have a budget, they have ceilings, they know what their numbers are, they can do the bills, and the whole process is out the window. Alan Moore, tell me a story. We're going to have a much closer divide between Republicans and, and, and Democrats in the Senate. 
no matter what. So you saw the range here. Um, it, 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 it will tighten. Um, my, my prediction and wishful thinking is that once we get past this election, uh, we will find a more productive Senate in, the in working about 12 and 4. Across, <laughs> across the aisle uh, with, uh, and, the, and the president, uh, who's, who's had a strategy of disengagement from the world and from working with the Congress, will be pulled back in and start actually talking to these guys. And, and, and more will happen in the next Congress than we saw in this And I want a unicorn kitty. Uh, Denise Krepp, tell me a story. Louisiana. I mean, we talked a few minutes ago about how certain decisions made by the administration are going to hurt Mary Landrieu. There are others coming up in the next couple of weeks that are also going to possibly hurt her, and I can share more later. But this administration is not helping workers in Louisiana right now. Carl Tubin, tell me a story. This uh, Congress is very interesting. The House hasn't done very much. Uh, some people say the Senate hasn't done very much. And all this is going to be thrashed out uh, in the next three months. And uh, I think this whole election is so topsy-turvy, it's very unpredictable to know what's going to happen and where. Uh, Dan Lipner, tell me a story. Uh, in September, we're going to see an, uh, the next shoe drop in the Senate race is the bubble factor. When Bill Clinton starts hitting the road, who's still wildly popular in all of the places that the seats are up for grabs, uh, he is going to be more than a thumb on the scale and also going to help Hillary for, uh, start her race off. Good point. Good point. We were talking about the bubble factor. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, coming up towards November. Uh, two things. Number one, District of Columbia has a very strange situation right now. A court has ruled that apparently guns are legal here in this here town. And you can open carry and conceal carry as long as you have a license and it is a legally registered gun in your home state. It's going to be like Dodge City here in your District of Columbia. Yeah. Now, other strange story. Oh, go ahead. Tom I Smell. just want to know whether whether that rule applies to our group or can we have a separate <laughs> a separate rule that you can't. No guns, guns here in Shelly. I think oh, Alan's okay. backing right now. The court the court decision's been stayed. It, right, but <laughs> right, but interesting situation. However, second story is if you're a congressman and you sit on a foreign affairs committee and it's your first day, do yourself a favor. Don't look at the names on the dais and automatically assume they're representatives from a foreign government. When you are addressing a, a undersecretary of state and a deputy secretary of commerce, and you're telling them that you want to get a message back to their government in Delhi, you might want to reconsider that one, Congressman. I'm not going to mention names. Just go online. But you've got to watch the video. It is hysterical and proof positive we continue to elect people that may need a few years of testing before they actually sit in committee and start speaking. Good <laughs> God. Uh, with that, certain congressman from Florida that will remain nameless. One who took Trey Ray. Who has apologized? Who has apologized? Yeah. You think? You think? Good Lord. Go tell your go tell your government. You mean your government, Congressman? What? <laughs> John, you're looking let's at me applaud, strange. Let's applaud Alan's point and congratulate Bernie Sanders and Jeff Miller for just a second for reaching across the aisle and making something happen. It's getting voted on today. 
on the veterans thing. Nobody seems to care that they don't have the money, which is fine with me. But Bernie Sanders is, in fact, a socialist, and Jeff Miller is a conservative Republican. And if they can do that, maybe there is hope. You know what? I would argue, maybe there is hope. I would, I would argue Bernie Sanders is a socialist. I think he is a straight-up independent. I, I give him credit for he that. Says he's a so- he says he's a socialist, so I'll uh, go with that. Okay, we'll go with that. On behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Alan Moore, Denise Krepp, Carl Tuvin, Dan Lipner, our special guest. Special thank you. Hopefully he'll come back more frequently than thank not. John Freshman. I am your host, moderator, Justin Russell. And for informational purposes, the next two weeks are going to be best of. I am going to Martha's Vineyard. I am going to run a pizza parlor in Martha's Vineyard. You were the president. At the same time, the president of the United States is up there. Go check out Edgar Kemp. <laughs> if you don't think that I'm not trying to get five minutes with him and pulling a press credential somewhere, you're crazy. I'm going to do it. Give me some cheese. Don't, don't open carrots. I'll, I'll give it. Uh, no, <laughs> nice. Nice. Next two weeks are going to be best of. You can also check us out on our website, uh, backroompolitics.org. You can tweet us, follow us on Twitter, at backroompolitics, or you can email your questions, suggestions, and comments to me, justin at backroompolitics.org. Folks, Take responsibility for the way you're governed. Get out there. Get smart on your vote. And we'll see you in two weeks. Have a great one, nation. Bye-bye. All right.